you've got a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Today is Palm Sunday, and uh, it's a fun day getting to celebrate new life in our congregation through these families and dedication of babies. Uh, also thinking about Easter coming forward and all kinds of uh, life floating around our, our church. And so again, as John mentioned, as we look toward Easter next week, uh, celebrating Holy Week this week, consider seriously uh, taking some invite cards and invite those. Uh, we're going to have a strong uh, service next week, a deeply evangelistic sermon on the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for us, not just an abstracted event 2,000 years ago, but something that intersects with us uh, today and every day. Uh, and so we're excited about what's coming forward this coming week with Easter. And I want to kick all that off today by thinking about Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday uh, really starts the beginning of our celebration of Holy Week as we think about what's coming forward next Sunday with Easter. Palm Sunday gets its name from the, the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on that Sunday before the following Sunday with Easter and uh, enters into Jerusalem, and there were some of his disciples there waiting for him, waving palm branches and worshiping him as he entered into the city. And so that's where it gets the name Palm Sunday. And so today what I want to do is we think about the beginning of Holy Week and what we're about to celebrate all week long is to look at a passage in Luke chapter 9 that locks in on the pivotal moment in the life of Jesus that sets into motion everything that we now know to be Palm Sunday and everything that we now know to be Holy Week and all that happens as we roll through observance of what's going on with Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And so I'm going to be honest, this passage in Luke chapter 9 I'm really, really excited today to preach it uh, because this is a passage that has messed me up for years and I have looked for an opportunity over the last about five years to preach this passage and I haven't found an opportunity and today was as good a chance as any and so I'm taking you with me, right? I'm taking you with me. So if you've got a Bible, Luke chapter 9, uh, we're going to start reading uh, in verses 30, um, sorry, in verses 43 through 46. And then verses 51 through 56. We'll spend most of our time in 51 through 56, but I want us to get a running start on some of the context. So I'll read this passage. The words will be on the screen behind me. If you don't have a Bible, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in from there. The word of God comes to us like this. And they were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Verse 51. And when the days drew near for him to be taken up, He set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him uh, and went into and went and entered into the village of of the Samaritans and to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. This is the word of God to us. Let's pray. God, we're asking today that you would help us, by the power of your spirit, see Jesus. Help us consider Jesus. Give us a way bigger vision and understanding of everything that he is for us, everything that you sent him to accomplish, um, to purchase us, and everything that he is in his majesty, his complexity, his splendor. His confu- the, the ways he's confusing, but also the ways that he's so victorious for us. God, thank you, Jesus, that 
that you are inexhaustible in the ways that we can consider you and cast our lives on you. I pray that this passage today would help us better understand everything we celebrate and the work you came to accomplish for us. God, help us in this hour, we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Amen. Well, this past week, I had a conversation with a guy up in Kansas City. We were there for a little conference. A few of our elders were up there for a conference. I had a conversation with a one of the elders from another church we were meeting with, and he was talking to me about this uh, new Kickstarter project uh, for, a, for, for a device called the Light Phone. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called the Light Phone. It's a second-generation Light Phone. And the whole concept of the phone is it's like a minimalist concept. So it's, it's not a smartphone, but it has smartphone, smartphone capacities, and it's all supposed to sort of be this minimalist concept, hyper-hipster concept, you know, where I don't need the world around me, and it's supposed to promote like a more engaged lifestyle. So the idea is less time spent with your head buried in your phone screen, more time with people around you, more time experiencing the world around you. Now, for some of you, you hear of this, maybe you've heard of this concept, and that sounds completely terrible to you, right? Because the smartphone has become like the saving grace and security blanket for, for introverts, you know? Like, I don't have to talk to you people. People are the worst. I have my phone screen. It's my best friend, you know? There's others of you, though, that you hear that and you're going, man, I could use a more engaged lifestyle. I could use sort of more visibility and experience of the world around me. Maybe I should check out the light phone. Maybe go do so on your own time. I'm not here to debate for smartphones or light phones. I don't really care what kind of phone you have. But the point is, as I heard this, I thought, man, it is crazy. It is just crazy how many options there are for the things that we want in life. It seems like there's an endless amount of options for basically anything you want. And what's crazy is more options for all these things are coming out almost every day, right? And so we live in a current world where the mantra, the unspoken mantra is, bigger is better and more is best. We, we live in a culture, especially as Americans, a culture of excess, right? And so what's happening in marketing all the time What's happening with the light phone, for example, is that what's happening is companies are coming forward, and you know this, this is nothing profound, companies are coming forward to expose the, the vulnerabilities that we have, expose the feelings of discontentment in us as consumer, consumers, and then make an appeal to us that more of their product will serve to make us more comfortable, more convenient, it'll serve to, to, to give us more peace and ease in our life and solve all of our problems. That's marketing 101. Now here's what's crazy about all of that. None of us actually believe that's true. But all of us fall for it, don't we? All of us fall for it. None of us believe that's true, that you're going to buy this product and magically you're going to have a better physique and you're going to look better and your marriage is going to be better and your house is going to be cleaned and your kids are always going to obey and your car's always going to run and you're going to have millions of dollars in the bank account and you're going to have more friends because you have this stupid little phone, right? None of us actually believe that. But all of us fall for it. And I know this, and you know this, because of all the stuff that you have in your life, stuff that you don't use and why you have garage sales, and you have the debt to prove it. We buy this lie all the time. And the whole idea is, right, more options, more stuff, more resources. We have more options and more resources today than any other people on the face of the planet in world history. You realize that. Regardless of what your income is, we as Americans today are some of the richest people to ever live on the planet. That's absolutely true. More options, more resources, and the happier and the healthier we'll be, right? But, but the reality is, what's going on in, in sort of the depression rates in our world today, they're at an all-time high. 
The reality is those battling with panic and anxiety and fear is through the roof. Me too. You could argue that as a society, as generations go forward, as every generation moves forward, we are, we are, we are less committed and we are more resistant to decision-making all the time. And at the same time, we are more connected through social media than we've ever been, but all the time I have meetings with people who want to lament about loneliness. So we have more options, more resources, and none of this is seeming to make a difference, right? But here's what I find so fascinating about what's happening for us in this room with this passage laid before us. What's happening with Palm Sunday stands in a beautiful contrast to all of this. And here's what I mean. What's going on with Palm Sunday amidst our non-committal culture and amidst our anxious indecision is a Palm Sunday that stands up to be living and active and able to break through. So in the passage laid before us, if we're careful today, if we can listen carefully today, what's going to happen here before us is that there is a rock-solid commitment. There's a rock-solid commitment, and there's a non-anxious decision that's made in a moment that has the ability to meet you, to meet me, and to reorder us amidst this present world that we live in. And so in Luke chapter 9, there's three things I want us to see about Jesus. I want us to see that he's unwaveringly decisive toward you. He's unwavering, unwaveringly decisive toward you. He narrows the options, not more options, not more resources. He's unwaveringly decisive toward you. Secondly today, he's sober in his mercy. Jesus is sober in his mercy. And the last thing, he's unflinching toward the surprising plan of God. He's unflinching toward the surprising plan of God. So he's unwaveringly decisive, sober in his mercy, and unflinching for the surprising plan of God. Look back at the first one. He's unwavering and decisive. Verse 51. It says, when the days drew near for him to be delivered up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the verse that's messed me up for years now. The, the, the unwavering decisiveness of Jesus is so profound in this verse. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. What's being captured here in this verse is the, is the turning point in the life of Jesus. So, so in the Gospel of Luke, everything before this verse is all about telling us who Jesus is. Who is this one who stepped onto the scene, who claimed to be the Son of God? Who is this Jesus? But at this point, this is the pivotal point where everything turns from who he is to now show us what has he come to do? What has this Jesus come to do? I now know who he is, but what is he here for? He set his face toward Jerusalem. Some older translations of this verse say he set his face like flint. He set his face like flint to Jerusalem. What it's trying to capture for us is the amount of resolve that Jesus had to go to Jerusalem knowing that what was ahead of him was massive opposition and it was going to come at a great cost. And so when Jesus went to Jerusalem, like he knew exactly what that meant. For Jesus to set off in this moment in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go. He knew exactly what that meant. He knew exactly what he was going to have to endure at the hands of sinful men and on behalf of sinners like you and me. He knew exactly what was going on. But at this point, unfortunately, he was the only one who knew what was going on. His disciples were completely confused about what this whole journey was about. They were constantly confused about what was going on, despite the fact that Jesus over and over again tried to tell them what was happening. In the disciples' minds, the, the march toward Jerusalem was a victory march. It was a glory march. 
here we go. Jesus is about to roll into the capital city. He's going to pull a political takeover, overthrow the Roman Empire, and then take his seat as his rightful throne as the promised son of David forever. Here it's going to happen. And so what happens is they move right on past the passage we read in the beginning. They move right on past the talk of Jesus saying, I'm about to be delivered up, boys. I'm about to go to my death. They, They were confused by that. They were afraid to ask him about that. It made no sense to them. Instead, what does the passage say? They moved right on forward and preferred a different conversation. They started arguing with one another. Who's the greatest among us? Yeah, 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 Jesus, you're going to die. But let's talk about something really important. Who's, who's the greatest among us? Who's going to have the best seat next to Jesus when he rolls into the capital city and takes his throne? I know I'm going to be there when he rolls out the kingdom of God. I hope I'm sitting next to him. That's what they wanted to talk about. But Jesus was under no such illusions of what Jerusalem was about. He had a different vision. And the Jerusalem road was a lonely road for Jesus. It was a lonely road for Jesus. When he resolved to go to Jerusalem, when he set his face to go there, he was setting his face to die. Now, when you hear of the death of Jesus this morning, let me just throw out a warning. When you hear of the death of Jesus this morning or even this week, don't hear about it in the casual way that you're tempted to because you're familiar with this because you've gone through Easter before. Remember, he had a nature like ours. So it's true, he, he is the son of God, right? But, but he's also fully man. He's, he's also fully man. So like a man, he felt real pain. It, it wasn't pretend what he experienced through his life and even in this final week. Like a man, he felt real pain. Like a man, the joys of this life would have been desirable to him. Marriage, children, long life being well-liked in the community. That would have been desirable to him. He was, a, he was a man, fully man, right? He had a family. He had brothers and sisters. He had places in his hometown of Galilee that were special to him that he liked to visit. There were places in the mountain that he liked to go to on a regular basis to get away and to enjoy God's creation. It's true. He is the son of God, but he's also the son of man. He's fully man. And so his experience and the human experience, well, he wasn't plastic to the human experience. He experienced all of it. So at this moment, to turn his back on all of that stuff and to set his face toward Jerusalem, to set his face toward vicious whippings and beatings and mockings and scourgings and spitting, it was not an easy decision. It was hard. It was hard. And so I think some of the wildness of this verse is the invitation that it gives us to use our imagination, to use our imagination to to put ourselves in his place and to consider what he must have felt. When it came time, he set his face toward Jerusalem to consider afresh just how much he's loved you, just how much he's loved us. So the imagery here in this verse, just to kind of give an illustration of it, right? It's, it's the imagery and the intensity of a husband who stands up and sets his face against intruders that are breaking into his house, that are putting at risk his wife and kids. It's like that of a father who hears of his lost child and he sets his face toward a tireless search and rescue mission until his child is found. But the only difference in those illustrations that might give us some sentiment here is that Jesus, he's the true and better husband who in defense of his people, 
it doesn't mean that death does he part from us. It actually means his death secures us to be with him forever. He's the true and better father whose search and rescue mission isn't just hopeful. I hope to find my lost children. No, 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 no. His mission is sure. His mission is absolutely sure. And his rest and our rest in his arms is 100% secure. And so when Jesus set his face to go pay the price for your sin and mine, he knew exactly how much it would cost. And here's what's so beautiful about this verse. He set his face to Jerusalem, which means he never sought to negotiate the price. He never tried to wiggle. He never tried to barter. He never sought a bargain. He knew the price. He set his face and he went. Jesus is unwaveringly decisive toward you. But I also want us to notice here how he's sober. He's sober in his mercy. He's clear thinking in his mercy. Look at what happens as they set off toward Jerusalem. Verse 52. It says, he sent messengers ahead of him. And they went and they entered a village of the Samaritans and they made preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Now, this is a bizarre passage, right? So Jesus sets off from Galilee to head toward Jerusalem. He's got to pass through Samaria. And it says when he does, the people there rejected him. Now, now there's some debate as to why they must have rejected him. I could get into that, but that's going to bore you today. The point is they rejected him, right? And so here's what happens. James and John, two of his disciples, they see this happening and they turn to Jesus and they say, can you believe how these Samaritans are treating you? Do you see what's going on here? Hey, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven? Because we'll totally do it. Let's smoke these fools. (laughs) No wonder Jesus called these guys the sons of thunder, right? Like this escalates very, very quickly for them. Now I read this and it's easy to go, what are they thinking? How ridiculous is that? And you want to judge them as complete morons. But, But there's actually some context here. And so here's what I mean. If we were to roll back and read all of chapter 9, just before this is the moment of transfiguration. James and John were up on a mountain praying with Jesus. And in this moment, a light shone around Jesus. They saw him to be the son of God for who he really is. And then in that moment, a bizarre thing happens. Moses and Elijah, Old Testament prophets, show up. As Jesus is seen to be the son of God, Moses and Elijah show up and they point to him and they say, he's the one we've been talking about. He's the one we've been pointing to. He's the one we've been waiting for. Now, the reason that's significant for why the disciples jumped to the conclusion of calling down fire is because Moses and Elijah are two prophets who called down fire upon their enemies when they were rejected, right? Moses called down fire on Pharaoh. Elijah called down fire on the prophets of Baal. And so now in this moment, they just experienced that. Now they come to this moment, Jesus gets rejected. And they're thinking, hey, listen, you're a way bigger deal than Moses and Elijah, Like rejecting you is way more significant than rejecting them. They're just prophets of the Old Testament. Like you're the son of God. Surely fire is the thing to do right now, right? But look at how Jesus responds to them in verse 55. He says, he turns to them and he rebukes them. He turns around and he says, guys, shut up. Stop talking. Why why are you constantly missing the point? Can you imagine how confused they must have been? 
Like in their minds, they were standing up for Jesus. Look, we're going to roll with you. Hey, we're your boys, ride or die, Jesus, right? And they're, how confused they must have been. But think about how confused they would have continued to be. Just moments after this, so just days after this, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus to kill him, Jesus doesn't fight the soldiers. He actually heals one of them. And then think about beyond that at the cross, when the soldiers are pounding the nails into his hands and into his feet and driving his skin into the wood of the cross. Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They they don't really understand what they're doing. Why? What kind of sobriety is this? What kind of mercy is this? And so why doesn't the fire fall on the Samaritans? Why doesn't the fire fall on the soldiers? Like it's a question we ought to ask because that sort of thing has happened before. But Jesus tells us the answer in Luke chapter 12, just a couple of pages over. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. He says, I have come to cast fire on the earth. So at first, it's a little bit more confusing, right? So the answer as to why not is he says, I actually have come to bring fire on the earth and I wish that it were already kindled. What is he talking about? Remember, his face was set toward the Jerusalem mission. He trusted himself to the final judgment of God. And so the reason the fire didn't fall on the Samaritans, the reason the fire didn't fall on the soldiers is because the fire was set to fall on him. It was set to fall on him. He put himself forward to be set ablaze under the judgment of God's wrath for sin, your sin and mine at the cross. Fire was about judgment. He set himself forward to be set ablaze under that judgment. That's the Jerusalem mission. He came to bring fire on the earth. That's absolutely for sure. But for all who would look to him, he came to take it. He came to bear it. He came to suffer rejection from God that you would never have to. What kind of sobriety is this? What kind of mercy is this? It's crazy to consider. And here's one of the things I find so, so beautiful about this. If you're, if, you're a Christ, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, there is such a beautiful picture of Jesus' heart for you here. Before I became a Christian, one of the reasons I was against Jesus is because I had just assumed, based on what I knew of him, the reason I was against Jesus is because I assumed that he was against me in my life. It was sort of a defense mechanism, self-protection. I'm against Jesus because he's against me. Why would I want him if he doesn't want me? But when you read what's going on here, in the Jerusalem mission, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. He takes the fire so that you would never have to. What's going on is Jesus is not against you. He couldn't possibly be more for you. He couldn't possibly be more for you. He came to bring fire, but not that you would take it. He put himself willingly forward to be set ablaze under the judgment of God's wrath for sin, yours and mine. He's sober in his mercy. He's unwaveringly decisive. But the last thing I want us to see today is he's unflinching toward the plan of God, the surprising plan of God. So look at verse 56. 
real simple. It says they went on to another village. They went on to another village. The, the Jerusalem march moves forward. So Jesus doesn't enter into Jerusalem until Luke chapter 19. And so I'd encourage you this week, hey, read Luke 19 through Luke 24. That's the whole thing of Holy Week. He doesn't arrive there until Luke 19. He gets there and it's the, it's the significant moment. It's the formal moment of Palm Sunday. He arrives into Jerusalem and he has disciples there waiting for him, already ready to worship him, shouting at the top of their lungs, waving palm branches to celebrate his arrival, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, glory in the highest. It was a crazy week for Jesus, the final one of his life. It was a crazy week. It all begins with a worship service. People waving palm branches. They were ready to make him king right there on the spot. But Jesus didn't flinch. Jesus didn't buy the press because the mission wasn't finished yet. The mission wasn't finished yet. And so the waving of the palm branches and the worship, it was a short-lived thing because Jesus still had work to do. And so that was Sunday, Palm Sunday. On Monday, he rolls in. Maybe you know the story, right? On Monday, he rolls into the temple and he rebukes the religious leaders for their false worship. It starts off as a pretty crazy week. On Tuesday, those same religious leaders come to confront Jesus and they interrogate him. Who do you think you are? Why do you rebuke us? And based on what authority do you do this? Now he's put on trial and interrogated in public by religious leaders. On Wednesday, those same religious leaders, they start conspiring to have him put to death. He can't be here in the capital city. It's too much for us. And Judas agrees to betray him from the inside. On Thursday, he celebrates the Passover feast with his disciples. He knew this would be his final meal. He celebrates the Passover feast. And then just hours later, after taking that bread and that cup, the betrayal goes down. The soldiers, they come to arrest him. And they come to take him away and put him on trial with trumped up charges. Friday. The crowds hand him over to Pilate and they begin to shout, crucify, crucify, crucify. Give us the murderer. We don't want this Jesus. Give us the murderer Barabbas. Crucify him. And so Friday, from one vantage point, it was the darkest day in history. From one vantage point, the son of God is defeated and the plan of God the father looks ridiculous, right? from one vantage point. But listen, none of those things were happening by accident. This is what's so beautiful when you read the gospel story. None of these things are happening at random or by coincidence or just, or by accident. All of it was the plan of God. Jesus didn't have his life taken from him. He willingly laid it down. That's important to understand. He willingly laid his life down. So it looked like people were conspiring and betraying and coming to arrest and put him on trial and the people were shouting at him. He willingly laid his life down. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. So amidst all the chaos, he trusted himself to his father and he never flinched. He never flinched. And so Friday. And then on Saturday, It seems like everything is lost and broken and the father's plan has failed. But then Sunday, Sunday though, right? That's next week. (laughs) 
That's next week. We'll get there. But, but spoiler alert, mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. God did not lose his son, and he gained many more in the process. Now, the reason that on Palm Sunday, the worship and the waving of palm branches was so short-lived, the reason it was so short-lived is because the mission wasn't done yet. Jesus is basically saying, hey, put down those palm branches because I've still got more, more work to do. He goes on to finish that work. He sets his face to finish that work. And what he does is he makes a way in order that in the future there would be a day when the palm branches would show up again and they'd be placed in the hands of his people, the full number of his people purchased for his kingdom in triumph forever. He said, what do you mean? Look at Revelation chapter 7 and we get a preview into what Jesus is accomplishing. Revelation 7, starting in verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and behold, this is the heavenly throne, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, every nation, every tribe, every people, every language. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with what? with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before God and they worshiped saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And so the reason the fire didn't fall on the Samaritans. The reason the fire didn't fall on the soldiers. The reason the fire hasn't fallen on you or me or any who reject Jesus is because the fire was set to fall on him. And the reason he didn't stop to rest in the worship on that first Palm Sunday given to him is because the fire hadn't fallen yet. The fire hadn't fallen yet. And so for the sake of grace and for the sake of mercy and for the sake of being unwaveringly decisive, he set his face toward Jerusalem so that all those who rejected him among the Samaritans, the soldiers, you and me and those in Cameroon and those in Thailand and those in Japan and those in Italy and those in Mumbai, India and those in Mexico and those in Colombia and thousands of other tribes and languages and peoples could be turned from their sin, purified by his sacrifice and then a palm branch of praise placed in their hand and your hand and in mine. That's why. That's why the worship didn't last so long. The mission wasn't done yet. I've got more palm branches to give out. The reason he didn't stop on that first Palm Sunday is because the party wasn't big enough. He is worthy of his name, and he's worthy to receive the full reward of his suffering in our place. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And so the plan of God for his son, the plan of God for his son, Jesus, was to win the full number of the people of God, even through the surprising path of death and suffering. Jesus knew this, and he never flinched. He never flinched. 
And so Palm Sunday, as we think about Palm Sunday today, this isn't just some celebration that we observe that happened 2,000 years ago, although it is that. And it's also not something we observe and we recognize there's a Palm Sunday that's going to happen for trillions of years over and over again at the throne of God in heaven in the future. Although it is that. Palm Sunday is something that we celebrate today and it's something that anchors us every single day. Here's what I mean. Jesus has set his face to pursue you. Palm Sunday is a reminder that Jesus has set his face to pursue you. You can't outpace him. His death and resurrection point to his victory. He's already set his face toward you. So here's our response. It's to see this. It's to behold this. And it's to turn our face back to him with the same decisiveness. Set your face to Jesus because he's already set his face toward you. You hear that? Set your face to Jesus because he's already set his face toward you. But it's also that Palm Sunday is a reminder of the sober and the patient mercy of God. The fire hasn't fallen on us, but Jesus willingly took the fire on himself. And so Palm Sunday is a reminder that now God sends us out to be those same kind of merciful people. There's all kinds of people around you that have wronged you, that have rejected you. There's all kinds of people around you that have hurt you. Listen, no one has received more offense than Jesus. No one has been wronged, rejected, and hurt more than Jesus. And yet he's sober in his mercy because he sees the full plan of God. God didn't leave Jesus stranded and he won't leave you stranded. And so he now sends you out to be a person of mercy. Right? But the last thing, Palm Sunday, is a reminder that even though the plan of God is surprising and unorthodox and not what you would plan, even though the plan of God for your life at various moments doesn't make sense and where is it all going, it seems like it's actually a loss and a defeat. Palm Sunday is a reminder. It's really not. (laughs) It's really not. Again, God never left his son stranded. He knew what Holy Week meant. He knew the difficulty. He knew the scourgings. He knew the beatings. He knew it would feel like loss on Friday and Saturday, but Sunday was coming. And so for you, believer in Jesus, though the plan of God for your life and the season you're in might feel surprising, confusing, and you're not sure where it's going and obeying God right now may not make sense to you, Jesus is familiar with that too. But his example sets for us, keep walking, keep obeying, keep trusting, because God never leaves you. And so here we are, right? In the midst of a world that's full of lack of commitment and indecision with anxiety all around, the beauty of Palm Sunday is that it still stands up with a narrowing of decision, Jesus unwavering. He's sober in his mercy, and he never flinches in his mercy for you.